Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Joshua Lynn, author of Preserving the White Man's Republic. Joshua Lynn is the author of the book Preserving the White Man's Republic, Jacksonian Democracy, Race, and the Transformation of American Conservatism. Now, in the title, you use the terms white man's republic and Jacksonian democracy. Uh, what kind of political beliefs are we talking about there? The, using the term white man's republic, I'm referring to a very specific idea of a political order that existed in the early 19th century United States as envisioned specifically by the members of the Democratic Party, the followers of Andrew Jackson. And not only was it a political order a, and an idea of how government should function, but it was a political order that was tied to a very specific conception of a cultural order and a social order and specific ideas about race and gender and the household and the family. And so it's quite a holistic concept. It's uh, it was a way of envisioning the proper functioning of politics, but politics that was not separated from other aspects of life. So it was a political order in which, according to Jacksonian Democrats in the 1840s and 1850s, all white men had equal political rights and to the exclusion of basically everybody else in the United States. And the exclusion of other Americans was what was the foundation of white men's political rights and their political equality and their ability to participate in democracy. Now it's called Jacksonian democracy. Uh, was, did he write anything about it? Was he the initiator of these ideas or was he just the, the key champion of them? He, he was champion and initiator. He didn't write, he never wrote any sophisticated treatise and that's that holds true for the people that I study in the generation after Andrew Jackson. Uh, my book looks at the, picks up in the late 1840s uh, after Jackson's death in 1845 and moves through the 1850s until the start of the Civil War. And this was still the party that Jackson had helped to create. And they still believed in the set of ideas that Jackson had popularized and, ha and had spread through his political writings, his presidential messages, his speeches. Uh, but in terms of a, a treatise, Jackson never never gave us a, uh, a disquisition on Jacksonian democracy. Now, this period that you talk about uh, included presidents like uh, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. Uh, how did they... Uh, were they pretty consistent in terms of their policies uh, maintaining its, its uh, connection to Jacksonian democracy, or, or did they vary some? Right. So this is this is the period of the of the lackluster presidents, and this, so this period of the Democratic Party's history tends to receive less attention from scholars than the 
sort of golden age of Jacksonian democracy of the, in the 1830s, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, when the party was led by Jackson himself and his more immediate um, uh, allies like Martin Van Buren. And so the presidents of the 1850s, like you mentioned, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, really tend to pale in comparison. They're usually ranked as some of the worst presidents in American history. And yet they were consummate Jacksonians, I argue. Now, scholars disagree here. And a lot of scholars interpret the 1850s Democratic Party as having fallen away from Andrew Jackson and the ideas of Jacksonian democracy. And so some scholars argue that the ideas of Jacksonian democracy which was a political ideology that embraced egalitarianism, embraced popular politics, embraced individual rights. They would argue that those ideas left the Democratic Party and entered other parties, and in particular, the anti-slavery movement, the Republican Party in the 1850s, and became valuable ideological weapons to fight slavery. So that what remained in the Democratic Party was no longer real Jacksonianism, and it was pro-Southern, pro-slavery, non-ideological, unprincipled, led by leaders like Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Northern presidents who seem to be very pro-Southern. But what I argue instead is that the Democratic Party in the 1850s is still Jackson's party. And that's not to say that other scholars are incorrect in showing that Jackson's ideas may have proliferated, may have spread across the political spectrum. But to deny that people like Franklin Pierce, people like James Buchanan were Jacksonians is to, I think, misinterpret the legacy of Jacksonian democracy. This party that sought to preserve a distinctly white man's republic in the 1850s was still perpetuating Jackson's ideas. And Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, James Buchanan especially, were Jacksonians. James Buchanan, his early career was as a Jackson man in Pennsylvania from the very start of Jackson's political rise almost. And so by the 1850s, James Buchanan is very much a Jacksonian standard bearer. Now you write about uh, James Buchanan starting off as a Federalist. Uh, how did he make that transition? What, what was it that drew him into Jacksonian democracy? Right, so he, he initially did begin as a Pennsylvania Federalist. And I think he saw the future. I think he saw that federalism as a political party was moribund. I think he saw Jackson's popularity. And so he yoked himself to Jackson very early on in Pennsylvania as a way to build a winning political coalition in Pennsylvania. He saw the popularity of Jackson. Jackson, to some extent, had a grassroots popularity as he ran for president in the 1820s. And throughout the country, young politicians, especially like James Buchanan, created Jackson parties in their states. And so that's what he did in Pennsylvania. And so when he when Buchanan ran for president in 1856, he had undeniable Jacksonian credentials. And, the, and those credentials were popularized in his campaign material, even though Andrew Jackson never actually liked James Buchanan. Jackson was annoyed by him, didn't trust him. Buchanan was quite a crafty political operator, not the most trustworthy fellow, and Jackson detected that. Now, for many years, the, the opponents of Jacksonian Democrats were the, the Whig Party, the Whig Party. Uh, what, how did the ideologies differ? 
So in the 1830s, 1840s, this classic era of what historians call the second party system, the Whigs and the Democrats faced off and had very distinct visions. This was a very ideologically charged age of American politics. And they disagreed on all sorts of things, disagreed on economic policy, disagreed on all sorts of practical measures, but, and they disagreed sometimes, and they, the parties differed sometimes in terms of their demographic makeup. But really, the key differences were ideological, were principled differences, with Whigs emphasizing more of a market economy, embracing what they would have called progress, this new emerging capitalistic market economy in the United States, and using the state government apparatus to further economic development. And for the purposes of the collective good, more uses of an energetic state, whereas Democrats were a little bit more wary of a new market economy, which they saw as potentially taking away white men's independence, especially small farmers, small shopkeepers, artisans. And they were also much more wary about an interventionist state being used to further economic development. They feared that the state could step in and, what in today's terms, pick winners, you know, favor corporations, favor one group of investors, favor one canal company over another. And so in the 1830s and 1840s, these ideological differences over state power, the rights of individuals, the proper way of leading development and maintaining social order really played out in policymaking regarding economic issues to a large extent. This shifts dramatically in the 1850s when the Whig Party dissolves. By the mid-1850s, the Whig Party has ceased to exist. So the time period I'm writing about is a much more chaotic era in political history in terms of the party structure, because this relatively stable competition between Whigs and Democrats faded away in the 1850s. And there's this period of uncertainty, this period of partisan realignment as the parties are reshuffling, people are switching parties, new parties are emerging, parties are collapsing. And it wasn't clear to many in the 1850s what a what a new stable party competition would eventually look like. Now, in the late 1840s, President James Polk led the United States into a war with, with Mexico that would result in uh, the significant territorial expansion. How did the results of that war affect the type of political conflicts that were going on at, at that time? So the results of the Mexican-American War destabilized American politics. So that was one of the great causes of this partisan realignment as suddenly the, the major parties had to deal with this massive expansion of federal territory, and in particular disputes over whether or not slavery would spread to all the territory uh, wrested away from Mexico in the Mexican-American War. And that was one of the leading issues for the partisan realignment, the disintegration of the Whig Party, the difficulties the Democrats would increasingly have in holding together Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats. And ultimately this debate over slavery in the territories becoming much more prominent in American politics would lead to a much more vocal, much more popular anti-slavery movement that could enter mainstream politics, eventually culminating in the Republican Party. 
were the parties, the, the Whigs and the Democrats, did they break down on pro-slavery, anti-slavery lines, or were there pro- and anti-slavery Whigs and pro- and anti-slavery Democrats? There were pro- and anti-slavery factions within each party. The second party system was characterized by national parties. The Whigs were a party that existed in the North and in the South, and to be a Southern party, to have a Southern wing, it had to be pro-slavery. And the same with the Democrats. Now, the Democratic Party itself was more pro-slavery, more pro-Southern, and had a larger electoral base in the South at certain times, and it was much more avowedly a white supremacist party, a much more avowedly racist party, but both parties broadly agreed on certain things, uh, if, if, if for no other reason than to keep their parties intact. This became increasingly difficult to do as slavery became much more prominent among white politicians as a political issue, a controversial political issue, Northern Whigs tended to be more anti-slavery, and as they became more vocal in their anti-slavery, it became much more difficult to work with Southern Whigs in a national party. And so the Whig party is much less effective than the Democratic party in maintaining its national coalition because the Northern Whigs and the Southern Whigs could not continue to compromise as easily as the Democrats could. And that's one thing I discuss in my book is the ability of Democrats with their conception of the white man's republic to articulate a political vision that could unite white men in the North and white men in the South in a national coalition that maintains itself as a national coalition all the way until 1860. It's the last national party, which is really to, to, to an extent an impressive achievement in an era which we usually portray as incredibly divided between North and South in which all the national institutions like churches and political parties are fracturing. The Democratic Party does maintain itself, not, not easily and not perfectly, all the way until 1860. So was the Democratic Party during this period, was it the dominant party in America? Was it kind of at the peak of its, of its uh, history? It really was. The Democratic Party was the dominant party for most of antebellum America. And then in the time period that I'm writing about, the late 1840s, 1850s, it was the dominant party, especially with the dissolution of the Whigs. The Democratic Party was the only nationally competitive party by the mid-1850s. It's the only party that actually unites white Northerners and white Southerners in the same political coalition. And for most of the 1850s, the presidency was controlled by Democrats. Democrats were viable, winning elections. And usually the story of the 1850s is told as the gradual waning of the Democrats, the fracturing of this party, and the rise of Republicans, culminating in Abraham Lincoln's election in 1860. And yet that somewhat ignores the real vitality of the Democrats as, a nas as once again a national party, able to unite Northerners and Southerners, not and, and, and not for any sort of crass reasons, opportunistic reasons, but out of shared conviction. So Republicans are usually considered a party of principle, a party of conviction, and the Democrats were too. It's just those convictions and those principles are um, a lot less appealing to modern sensibilities. Now you say in the book that uh, in this period, right about the late 1840s and 1850s, that the Democrats reinvented themselves as conservatives. Uh, why did they feel the need to do that? Well, this is one of the big, pretty much the big argument of the book, that 
prior to this era, the Democratic Party had been considered usually the more progressive or radical party. And if anybody was to claim the mantle of conservatism in the 1820s, 1830s, it would have been the Whigs. The Whigs were a party that was more skeptical of majoritarian democracy, more skeptical of popular politics, more, skepti more skeptical of the people actually governing themselves in a real substantive way, more skeptical of enlarging um, popular participation and ideas of individual rights. Whereas the Jacksonian Democrats really championed this idea of progressively expanding the polity, albeit with very hard limits. Meaning that meaning those limits would stop at white men. So Jacksonian Democrats articulated a very expansive notion of democracy for white men that in which white men governed themselves, drafted their own constitutions, participated in electoral democracy and created popular politics and worked through a popular political party to mobilize themselves, to try to actually achieve some sort of substantive role in day-to-day -day governance. Jacksonian Democrats also believed in the uh, liberal ideas of individual natural rights, once again, exclusively for white men. And Whigs tended to be more skeptical of some of these ideas. These were seen as quite radical ideas, and especially when compared with European politics. But yet by the 1850s, Democrats are, were avowedly calling themselves a conservative party. And this is where it gets really interesting. And this is what started me on this topic as I was intrigued by Democrats like Buchanan specifically self-identifying as conservative in the 1850s. And I wondered what that meant for the party of Andrew Jackson, which was usually considered this much more egalitarian, much more democratic party among white men, what the implications were of that party suddenly calling themselves America's conservative party. I thought perhaps this was because they were changing their ideas. They were changing their ideas to more traditionally conservative ideas, maybe becoming more skeptical of democracy, maybe becoming more skeptical of ideas of individualism and individual rights. And what I found was that the ideas were not changing, just the name given to them was changing. So Democrats were self-identifying as conservative without actually changing their Jacksonian principles. Uh, so it's sort of, sort of a very clever rebranding that they were undergoing because of a changed political context. And that changed political context in the 1850s was the context of increasingly divisive debates over slavery, the increasing militancy of the abolitionist movement, the, the um, demands for political rights among African Americans and women, so that Democrats no longer wanted their republic to expand in a progressive direction, whereby it might include other than white men. They wanted to preserve what they had already created. They wanted to preserve their democratic republic, their white man's republic, and so to conserve it, they began to call themselves a conservative party without actually changing their underlying dedication to white man's democracy. So as they were going through this kind of rebranding process, uh, was there any connection or influence on your, of European conservatism on their thought? Not, not a significant amount. If anything, 
Democrats tended to look at thinkers in Europe that would be have been more traditionally liberal. So in the European revolutions of 1848, for example, in which liberals and radicals challenged conservative and monarchical orders in Europe, Jacksonian Democrats cheered on those, those revolutionaries. They, they saw that as the extension of their own of political philosophy. They, they, they were proud that Europeans were inspired by their ideas. Uh, and take so, somewhat taking credit for these ideas. And so they, the extent to which Jacksonian Democrats were looking to Europe was usually to cheer on European liberals. Now, normally we think of the, the kind of progressive elements and the conservative elements as in opposition to each other. Uh, but you say in the book, and you're kind of continuing what you were talking about here, that the, that the democracy intended to become America's progressive and conservative party. How did they reconcile these two, two different uh, tendencies? So this... It's important to point out just how messy the politics was of this time period. And that's what makes it exciting to study the decade before the Civil War. The parties are shifting, but the ideas are too. Things aren't quite as clear cut as one party being conservative, one party being progressive or liberal. And of course, the terms themselves are in flux, don't necessarily mean the same things as we mean by them today. But the Democrats weren't the only party claiming the mantle of conservatism. Republicans self-identified as conservative, usually as a way to downplay their perceived radicalism if they were being attacked as favoring the abolition of slavery or, fa favoring, inter or favoring racial equality. They would usually call themselves conservatives. And an example of that is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln usually referred to Repub the Republican Party as having conservative ideas. The, the Whig Party, to the extent that it still existed, tried to argue that it was the conservative party. Another party emerged in the 1850s, the Know Nothing Party, this anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic party. They argued that they were the conservative party. So everybody, so a lot of mainstream political parties were making a play for that label because it had cachet, somewhat like today. We think we look at political actors on the right in the United States, and it's usually a competition over who's more conservative trying to outdo one another um, as who is more conservative. In this era, there was competition to claim that term, not to run to the right of each other, but because conservatism was seen as a, usually as a moderate middle of the road position. In this era of division between North and South, this era of division over slavery and other political issues, the viable party was the party that could make a play for sort of conservative middle ground. And so all parties tried to do that. And the Democrats were doing it. They were self-identifying as conservative on a very pragmatic level because that term had weight among the electorate. But once again, they were not abandoning their actual dedication to democracy, which especially at this time was not always considered a conservative idea. It was considered a destabilizing force, majoritarian democracy. So the Democratic Party maintains itself as a party of majoritarian electoral democracy and actually begins to promise, in fact, that their ideas of democracy will lead to the conservation of social order, prevent civil war, prevent unrest. They say in the book that uh, the Jacksonian Republic rested on an uncompromising correlation whereby white male mastery and political legitimacy stemmed from others' marginalization. 
how did, as, as women and African Americans were uh, becoming more active in, in championing their own rights, how did this zero-sum conception of, of rights uh, play out for them? So Democrats were emphatic about this zero-sum conception that the extension of rights to anybody other than white men would actually lead to a diminishing of white men's rights. There was a very hard correlation here because white men's rights were envisioned as natural. White, so this is Democrats borrowing from the Enlightenment tradition, once again showing that they're not conservative thinkers in a classical or traditional sense. They were borrowing from the Enlightenment social contract theory, arguing that white men had natural rights and were naturally equal. So that the extension of rights to anybody else would, for Democrats, be unnatural and would thus take away white men's rights. And so this is, it's not a coincident development that Jacksonian democracy existed alongside the, alongside slavery, alongside the disenfranchisement of black Americans and women those were, that was not a coincidence. Rather, they were mutually, mutually reinforcing phenomena. And so what we see it in the 1820s and 1830s, 1840s, is we see Jacksonians spearheading the expansion of rights for white men at the same time that they were restricting what rights might have existed, such as suffrage for African Americans in some states. These are these are developments that go hand in hand. And by the 1850s, Democrats were terrified that this political order that they thought that they had perfected would be undermined by all sorts of reformers, the anti-slavery movement, the Republican Party, the women's rights movement, as well as all sorts of other reform movements that were inspired by especially Protestant Christianity and moral conviction. And so Democrats bundle all these reformers together as threats to the rights of white men. Now, in the book, you, you also reference the term uh, degradation. You say it has a specific meaning uh, within the political context of the time, saying that, that degradation was the forfeiture of one's manly autonomy, both personally and politically. Why was that so important to them? This, this was important because it shows how politics intersected with daily life, which is a theme of, of the book. This is, my, my book is a history of political ideas, but it's, a, it's not a history of political ideas where there's, those ideas are divorced from the culture, from the context. These political ideas of rights, of equality for Democrats had meaning because it meant something in their daily life. So what the white man's republic promised Democrats was that they would have equal political rights in public, such as suffrage, office holding, but that they would also have the equal rights to mastery at home over household dependents, women, uh, enslaved persons. And so those, the private realm of mastery of the household and the public realm of rights went hand in hand and to challenge white men's political rights or to give rights to other to people other than white men was not only to diminish white men's political rights democrats would have argued but it was to degrade them as men at home by taking away their mastery 
over women and Americans of color um, outside of the public sphere. Now, this was a period where there are a lot of uh, fanciful nicknames for different groups of people politically. One, one of those names were the Doe Faces. Uh, who, who were the Doe Faces? So the, Doe fa the, the consummate Doe Face is, of course, Pennsylvania's very own James Buchanan. He, he is usually considered the leading exemplar of, of this political species, as it was referred to in the 1850s. And a Doe Face, the short definition, is a northern man with southern principles. And so usually in the 1850s, a lot of Democrats are considered doe faces. They're considered Northern men who make their political career by placating white Southerners, by defending slavery. And so it's a very negative caricature of Northern Democrats. And at the time it was used to attack Northern Democrats as disloyal to the North, as betraying Northern interests in favor of their own political advancement by pleasing the South by supporting slavery, by supporting Southern, white Southern interests. And there's a historical argument too that goes with that. If the Northern Democratic Party is conceptualized as a party of doe faces, it makes it sound like it's a party of men lacking principle and lacking popular support. It's Northern office holders who need Southerners to stay in power because they can't actually win elections in the North. And so it's a way of arguing that the Democratic Party was not a truly vibrant national party. Instead, it was a party of, of weak uh, Northern placeholders like Buchanan and white Southerners. And so the other half of that equation would be doe faces in the North and the slave power in the South, white Southerners controlling, dictating to these Northern doe faces, the slave power driving these Northern Doe Faces as if Doe Faces were themselves slaves to white Southerners. And that's usually how Doe Faces were portrayed by their enemies. They were people who were enslaved to Southern politicians. And that was an argument that existed at the time. And it's an argument that has endured in scholarship. Scholarly portrayals of the 1850s Democratic Party typically tend to portray it as a party of Doe Faces and the slave power. And so what I'm doing in this book is challenging that idea, challenging that idea that men like Buchanan were just self-interested opportunists who would do anything to win office and to do that would please the South any way that they could. Instead, I argue that no, this was a national party with nationally shared values. It was a nationally popular party and that these ideas of preserving white men's mastery at home and white men's political power in public was a vibrant ideology which could unite white men in the North and white men in the South. And that even though the Democratic Party was pro-slavery, was pro-Southern, it was not exclusively pro-slavery or pro-Southern. It also offered ideas. It also offered substance to Northern white men as well. Now, this was also a period of increasing immigration uh, from Ireland and, and the, the various German states. Uh, how, did, how did these? How did the democracy respond to an influx of immigrants? This is this really gets to the question of what Democrats could offer white men nationwide. Democrats in the 1850s were the champion of immigrants, and in particular Irish Catholics and the immigrants from the German states. So the Democratic Party is not only a champion of white men, of white immigrants, 
but it's also the champion of America's Catholic minority. There was a challenge to the rights of immigrants and Catholics. We mentioned earlier the Know Nothing Party, which emerges in the mid-1850s as the Whig Party collapsed. And for a while, the Know Nothing Party made a play to become the next major political party to offer opposition to the Democrats. And that this was a party that was anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. And Democrats responded forcefully with the defense of the rights of immigrants and Catholics, the rights to naturalization, the rights for immigrants, even unnaturalized immigrants, to have political rights like voting, and the rights of Catholics to have uh, the political rights like office holding to not be barred from serving in government and to have religious freedom. And so you have this really interesting phenomenon in the 1850s where the Democratic Party is an avowedly and it's an avowedly white supremacist party, virulently racist. Their political rhetoric is disgusting. And yet they're also passionately dedicated to religious freedom, freedom of conscience, and the rights of white immigrants. And it's this, it, this sounds jarring to us in the present that one party could articulate two ideas which today would not go together in a political party. But for them, it made sense. For them, there was an ideological consistency to this because this was a party that was promising to be the protector, the preserver of white men's rights. And white men's rights included the right to own other people, it included the right to worship freely, and it included the right to hold office, have political rights, regardless of country of origin, according to Democrats. So they're able to offer something to everybody. And so they're able to create a coalition where uh, Southern Democrats are some of the most passionate defenders of the rights of immigrants and Catholics, even though most immigrants and Catholics were in Northern states. And Northern Democrats become defenders of racial hierarchy and Southern white Southerners' rights to slavery. So they're able to create this coalition where they're all watching out for each other's rights. How did you come across this topic? What was it that, that drew you in? Uh, to a large extent, it was James Buchanan. I was doing some research on James Buchanan as what I thought was uh, an intriguing political figure who has not received a lot of attention. And I thought maybe there was something worth re-examining there. Uh, and I was also I was interested in him as an as a interesting political character, uh, as a bachelor president. I was curious how that manifested itself in the politics of the time. And I, and I, in reading his writings, he referred to himself as a conservative, his party as the conservative party. And I became very curious what that could possibly mean in this time period. And right now among historians, conservatism throughout American history is a very ripe topic of research. There's in the past, uh, several decades, there has been a tremendous outpouring of scholarship on the history of conservatism in the United States, as historians have realized that it's been a much more powerful force in American history than it's usually given credit for, that this seemingly liberal consensus in the United States has often been challenged by a very vibrant conservative ideology and conservative political movement. And most of this scholarship has been about the 20th century, 20th century conservatism. But we're seeing right now a much more recent phenomenon of 
19th century historians looking at conservatism as well and realizing that there was something similar going on with conservatism as a powerful force in antebellum America and in the Civil War era. And so my questions are very much in line with this really important field of research right now. How do you research a topic like this? Are, are you going through archives of newspapers, uh, or books, letters? Or how did you uh, proceed? So there's really two big batches of sources that I use. And one, one is published political rhetoric. There's not a lot of major treatises or philosophers to look to in the 1850s. It's sort of seen as an era that's a little bit short of, of big thinkers. And that might not be fair, but it's, you know, it's this era between John C. Calhoun and Abraham Lincoln in traditional surveys of political thought, um, at least among uh, those looking at political thinkers in the, main, in the mainstream parties. And so to get at political thought among partisans, I look at their speeches and I treat stump speeches, congressional speeches, political campaign pamphlets as theoretical texts, just as I would if I were reading John Locke, for example. So I'm elevating, to some extent, elevating daily political rhetoric to the level of political theory because this was an era in which politicians imbued their rhetoric with ideas. They thought that they were theorists. They thought that they were a party of ideas. They presented themselves as adhering to ideas and principles. And that sometimes might make us roll our eyes today, that sort of level of conviction when sometimes there's a cynicism about politics in America. But we still see that today with a lot of politicians being very ideologically driven. And so I study just any speech I can get my hands on, stump speeches delivered at crossroads in rural America to speeches delivered in Congress, presidential proclamations, uh, political pamphlets, political campaign biographies, and looking for how ideas entered the political rhetoric. How, does, how did a Democrat take a principled stand while campaigning for office or advocating a certain measure of public policy? And so that's one batch of sources. And the other batch of sources is, as you mentioned, archival sources, unpublished manuscripts, the, the, the private correspondence and writings of politicians. And I tried to access these uh, unpublished collections of Democrats from all over the country and Democrats from all walks of life, presidents, senators, but also just average Americans who identified as Democrats looked at their diaries, their letters, because I wanted to know how much the ideas that Democrats put out in public actually reflected who they were and how they thought in private, to really get to this question of were the ideas just something to put out there to win elections, or did it reflect a worldview? And what I found is that some of the richest sources for understanding how Democrats thought about ideas, thought about culture, were the unpublished sources. They talk about ideas just as much in their private writings uh, as they would do in public. And also with private writings, you get a more a sense of how the political ideas percolated into their conceptions of who they were as men, who they were as white men, and who they were as masters of their households. 
So are these resources, uh, are, are they digitized? Are they available online? Or are you still having to go to, uh, to libraries and, and, and other locations? So most of the manuscript collections are, that I use are not digitized. And so required travel to archives, required going through all these, these wonderful stacks of uh, original papers and, and, and documents. Although increase, you know, increasingly a lot of the published material is becoming digitized, but even there's still so, but there's still so much of that even that uh, some of that requires archival research. Where do you teach? I teach at Eastern Kentucky University. And uh, what do you teach there? What kind of courses are you teaching? So I teach in the Department of History, Philosophy, and Religious Studies here at EKU, and I am the department's uh, 19th century United States historian and historian of the Civil War era. So I teach our classes on general American history, but I also teach a variety of classes on the history of slavery, history of the Civil War, uh, political history. And then very unrelated to what we've been talking about, I also teach classes on the history of horror and the history of monsters uh, as sort of a, a, a way to give myself a break sometimes from 19th century politics. Now, to get back to the, the story we've been exploring here, uh, another Pennsylvania that, that figures in here is uh, David Wilmot, and uh, he had a very famous Wilmot Proviso named after him. Well, what was that? So Wilmot is an example of one of the Democrats that he departs from my book very quickly because he's one of the Democrats who leaves the party. Uh, uh, David Wilmot, as you mentioned, he authored this proviso that would have banned the extension of slavery to new federal territories. So he took an anti, he took a, he took a free soil stance whereby there would be no additional territory for slavery. And many Jacksonians embraced that and they embraced it for the reason that they didn't want white settlers to have to compete with a plantation economy or an enslaved labor force in new territories, particularly those territories acquired as a result of the Mexican-American War. So David Wilmot did not have altruistic reasons in terms of racial equality behind this measure. He was, he was very racist himself, and, and that would make sense coming out of the Jacksonian party. But he was against the extension of slavery. And those types of Democrats who felt very strongly about that, who took that free soil position, and then some Democrats who also were much more avowedly anti-slavery and even some who were um, not as white supremacists, these are the Democrats who would have left the Democratic Party beginning in the late 1840s and especially accelerating throughout the 1850s. And, and David Wilmot did that. David Wilmot left the party and eventually he found himself in the Republican Party as a much more comfortable home for him. And a lot, of a lot of Democrats did that. And those are the Democrats who have received the most scholarly attention with some really excellent um, work done um, on, on those Democrats who take Jacksonian ideas and use them for anti-slavery purposes. And so there's a really strong strain of Jacksonian anti-slavery ideas in the Republican Party. A lot of Republicans were like Lincoln, they were former Whigs, but plenty of Republicans were also former Democrats. And so David Wilmot appears at the very start of my book when he was still a Democrat, but then he, he fades away because I keep my focus on the Democrats who stayed in the party 
those who have not received as much scholarly attention. Now, one of the key policy ideas that emerges during this time is popular sovereignty. Uh, what was that? So popular sovereignty was an alternative to what Wilmot proposed. Wilmot uh, proposed that slavery be banned from the territories. Um, some white Southerners took the opposite hardline position and said that slavery must be allowed to expand and must be protected in its expansion to new territories. And then there's this middle ground that the Democratic Party uh, articulated called popular sovereignty. And this was the idea that the white men in those territories would decide for themselves whether or not to legalize the institution of slavery. And this is a very powerful idea that the, de that the Democratic Party as a party embraced, although many individual Democrats can be quite ambivalent about this idea. They embraced it at one level as a compromise measure. They didn't want to have to take a stand. Rather than, let, rather than forcing Congress to decide this really, uh, really messy issue, they sort of passed the buck on to local electorates in the territories, local coalitions of white men, just to get it out of their hands. But at the same time, they also elevate it to the realm of principle, and they argue that this is the this is the essence of Jacksonian democracy. This party that had always believed in the ability of white men to govern themselves, the ability of white male majorities to regulate themselves. This party then argued that this was the natural extension of that faith in the people, the people meaning white men, by letting the people decide on the most controversial issue in American politics. And they actually argued that this was taking democracy in a conservative direction. They said, if we let the local democratic majorities of white men decide this issue, this will bring social order to the country. It will bring, it will bring quiet to the political turmoils of the debates over slavery because we're taking it out of the national political theater and we're allowing white men to decide the issue. And Democrats argued who could be more trustworthy than white men to not rock the boat, to preserve social order and to not do anything radical like enfranchise black men or enfranchise women. And so they are, so Democrats argued that popular sovereignty was using democracy for conservative purposes by allowing democratic majorities of white men at the local level to regulate not just slavery, but to regulate things like race relations, to regulate inclusion and exclusion from the body politic, to regulate moral issues like the rights of immigrants, the rights of Catholics and the alcohol consumption. Another issue in this era was a temperance movement, which Democrats as a party rejected as another way of, of taking away white men's rights. So, uh, they argued that, once again, at the local level, let white men at the local level decide. Of course, this does not, it did not work, and it was an absolutely disastrous policy to take these morally contentious issues and let majorities decide, especially this idea that white male majorities should be able to decide the rights of other people, even unto allowing slavery, when African Americans were not part of this decision-making process. I mean, it, it it, it, it hits our ears as something uh, utterly immoral and, and reprehensible, this idea that this could even be considered democracy when the people whose fates was, was, 
was most implicated in it were not even part of the decision-making process. But for them, this was their understanding of democracy. Now, this, these policy debates over slavery in the territories was unfolding as uh, James Buchanan was running for president in 1856. So where did he come down on those issues? So James Buchanan was, as I uh, mentioned earlier, he, he's known as a doe face, and to some extent he was, in that he, has, he had a career of working with white Southerners and towing the pro-Southern line, but he's also the consummate Jacksonian in that he had a political career of defending the rights of all white men, as Jacksonians understood that. So he did have a career of defending slavery, defending the interests of white Southerners, but he also was a staunch defender of immigrants, of Catholics, and of course that played really well in Pennsylvania with, with a heavy immigrant population. He was also an ardent foe of temperance. Uh, he himself, he, he, could, he could drink many, many men under the table himself, but he was a foe of temperance because it was once again, this another example of reformers using the government, reformers using legislation to take away white men's rights. So Buchanan was very much this Jacksonian culture warrior. If we think about the politics of this era as culture wars, wars over not just economic policy or foreign policy, but moral issues, issues relating to race and gender and manhood and the household and religion. James Buchanan was a culture warrior in that he had a political career defending white men's rights on cultural issues in addition to economic issues, which we usually think of as being the type of political issues of this time period. And so when Buchanan ran for president in 1856, he did so as this character manipulated by the democratic press and democratic publications as this man who would stand up for the rights of all white men and whose defense of the South was not that of a doe face, but was that of a disinterested white man who would simply defend the, the rights of any white man. Now, you mentioned in the book about uh, how his body became this uh, symbol during the campaign. How did that happen? What were, they, what were they trying to do? So his bachelorhood was very important. So, of course, James Buchanan, our only lifelong bachelor as president, bachelorhood was a liability in this era especially. And yet Democrats reinvented his bachelorhood as an asset because without his own family, Democrats argued Buchanan could defend all families. He wasn't prejudiced to the North or the South by his own family. And so he could be this disinterested umpire and protect the rights of everybody. And so they actually argued that his bachelorhood was an asset. It made him an impartial statesman in this era in which people tended to align more with North or South. Here he, he, was, he was a national he could be father to the nation, is what Democrats argued. They also argued that his, his bachelorhood showed that in his private life, he was conservative. He was trustworthy. He was sexually temperate, sexually restrained, unlike these fanatical reformers like abolitionists. And so that his conservative private life, his conservative sexuality, his conservative body uh, was a visual embodiment of his conservative politics. And so, when, so here you see how in the book I discuss the intersection of political ideas with cultural ideas, that 
ideas about the body, ideas about one's manhood, one's sexuality, one's race, was just as much a part of party politics as economic policy. And so James Buchanan is just rhetorically manipulated by his party in really quite clever ways uh, as this very masculine man, as this very conservative man, as this very safe national man, in contrast to uh, the radicalism, the perceived radicalism of the Republican Party. Now, at the end of this era that you write about, of course, the Civil War comes along. And uh, how, did that, how did the Civil War and what came after affect the, the concepts and the ideology that, that you're writing about in the book? The story that I tell closes in 1860 with the pre prelude to the election of 1860 when the Democratic Party did finally split. In 1860, the Democratic Party could no longer reconcile Northern and Southern Democrats on a platform of popular sovereignty, especially as Southern Democrats realized that popular sovereignty could definitely be used to keep slavery out of the territories. And so Southern Democrats never wanted that to be the outcome of popular sovereignty. And the great failure of popular sovereignty is that when you buck the decision-making process off to the local level, that might work in the short term, but eventually that decision has to be made. Democracy has to render a verdict. As long as democracy is a process with no end, it could work. But once there has to be a verdict, it no longer can compromise both sides. So the party split in 1860 and split into a Northern and a Southern wing, which each nominated their own presidential candidate, uh, both of whom of course lost Abraham Lincoln. So the party in the short term fractured and then, of course, the Civil War ruptured some of the alliances between Northern and Southern Democrats. But really, what is interesting is the uh, ease with which the party rebuilt itself after the Civil War, because a lot of the ideas that the party had had in the antebellum era were still useful to Democrats after the war, especially this hostility to a active federal government that would intervene in matters, especially regarding race relations, and a dedication to white supremacy. So it's really quite quickly that the party is able to bring itself back together and continue through the late 1800s to be an avowed party of white supremacy, uh, and, but yet also still be a party that tended to be more favorable toward the rights of immigrants, at least among Northern Democrats. So some of those antebellum ideas endure. Well, Joshua Lynn is the author of the book, Preserving the White Man's Republic, Jacksonian Democracy, Race, and the Transformation of American Conservatism. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Phil. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.